This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. There are some weeks when you come into church that you're feeling good, you, you sun is shining, everything's going great and you're excited to be there. There are other times when you come into church and it's like your life is sliding in sideways on two wheels and you stumble into the doors of this place hoping for relief. Um, That affects your preacher as much as it affects you, to be honest. But I am encouraged by the fact, many things, but two things in particular. One, that God does not change, and his word does not change. And I am also encouraged by the fact that it is not my job to convince you that what we're about to read is true. And that's the point of our message today. It's not my job to convince you that this word is true, because someone else is going to do that. So let's pray. And then we'll get into it. Most holy God, I am thankful to be here this morning with my family. And I am thankful to get to open up your word and talk to your people. And so I pray this morning that you will speak loudly, that your voice will rumble in our hearts and that there are those here if there are those here who do not know you that they will be arrested by the truth of your word and the power of your spirit so that their only response is to throw up their hands and say Lord have mercy on me a sinner and for my brothers and sisters here I pray that you will Warm them with your truth so that they are strengthened for the road ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our text this morning is 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 6. Now, the last time I had the privilege of addressing you, we looked at uh, the end of 1 Corinthians 1 and beginning of 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, To bring us back up to speed, Paul is writing to the saints in Corinth, uh, initially warning them against growing division that was happening among them as factions were picking their preferred teachers or pastors. Paul explained that his job was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, not with clever rhetoric or worldly strategies, but the seemingly foolish and confounding message of the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, dying on a Roman cross and rising from the dead, who now calls all people to repent and follow him in dying to self in order to live for and with him forever. Now the people who believed this upside-down message came from all walks of life. And while a few may have been impressive by the world's eyes, for the most part, the church was c- composed of nobodies in the eyes of the culture. 
Yet God delighted in building his church full of nobodies. Even, and that was so that the glory would not rest in them, but in him. Even this famous missionary evangelist writing to them wasn't that impressive. Despite Paul's own fear and trembling and apparently weak persona, the gospel went forth. And though it seemed like folly to some, for those who believe, both Jew and Greek, Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now Paul ends the first part of chapter 2 by stating that the faith of the Corinthian believers is resting not in man's wisdom, but in God's power. Now in today's passage, he's going to clarify that the message he's speaking is indeed wisdom. It's just not the kind of wisdom on offer in the Corinthian lecture circuit. Rather, Paul is about to explain that the wisdom he and the apostles preach comes from God and can only be understood by those who have been given eyes to see it. These spiritual truths are spiritually discerned by spiritual people. Or to put it another way, we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to help us understand the mystery of the cross and the meaning of the gospel. So let's begin uh, by looking at verses 6 through 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is what God's word says. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And let's pause there. Paul says that among the mature we do impart wisdom. Now this word mature here is a little tricky because our first inclination would be to contrast that, uh, contrast that maturity versus immaturity. And we, indeed, we do see in the next chapter, Paul talks to the Corinthians how they are, and talks to the believers about how they're acting like spiritual babies in an immature way uh, through their actions and their, their limitations because they're thinking uh, uh, like the world. But in this section, there's a more fundamental contrast being shown than merely immature versus mature. The word mature here has also the sense of completion, perfection. Uh, a, ch- a change. And we should weigh, uh, weigh in the immediate context of these verses here as we try to understand what he means by mature. In the previous chapter, Paul set up a contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. Here, it is no different. While those who trust in worldly wisdom and sophistry would like to think of themselves as mature, it is instead those who have believed the message of the gospel whom God calls mature. Now the wisdom Paul is imparting to those who are mature, who are spiritually enlightened, is not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. As he argues in chapter 1, the wise man, the scribe, the debater of this age are all shown to be foolish and senseless by the wisdom of God. Indeed, they are doomed to pass away, brought to nothing. Instead, Paul says, He and the other apostles are imparting a secret and hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now, 
why is it called secret and hidden? Is this wisdom some sort of like insider insight that can't be shared with you unless you've, you're part of the inner circle of the group, you've reached level 57 or whatever of the secret club? No, just the opposite. Christianity is not a mystery cult that obscures its teaching. Rather, Paul and the apostles are, are shouting from the rooftops this message of Jesus Christ. So why is he calling the message secret and hidden? Well, the Greek word for secret here can be translated as mystery. Now, this is not mystery in the sense that we normally think of it, where the, uh, the clever detective has to put the clues together to unearth the master plan or the plot. We're not talking about Sherlock Holmes here. Rather, mystery in the New Testament, is a, it's a mystery that's hidden in broad daylight because it's a divine truth that cannot be captured through human reason. That's what mystery means here in the New Testament. A divine truth that we can't come to on our own, figuring it out along the way because of our own sinful limitations. Only God can reveal mystery to us. Paul talks about the mysteries of the gospel in other places in his letters. Later in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he talks about the mystery of our resurrection and the glorification of our bodies on the last day. In Ephesians 2, he describes the mystery, as already mentioned by, by Bobby, I believe, that the, the mystery of how God will unify Jews and Gentiles opposed to each other in every possible way into one body, one new man out of the two. In Ephesians 5, Paul describes how the picture of the husband and the wife in marriage is actually pointing to the relationship between Jesus and his church. He says this is a mystery. In Colossians 1, Paul describes the mystery he has been given to proclaim. Flip over there real quick. Colossians 1, verse 24. We're going to flip a lot today, so if you want to just take notes, you can. So I encourage you to grab a Bible so you can check me. Make sure I'm telling you the truth. Colossians 1, verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Quick, quick side note. What he's, not, he's not saying that Christ's afflictions, Christ's uh, uh, suffering was lacking anything, but that we now as the church represent Christ in the world, and so we receive the attacks of the enemy on his behalf. That's what he's getting at there by that note. Verse 25. Of which I have become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God, what? Fully known. It's not, he's, not, he's not obscuring it. He's proclaiming it. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul's ministry is about proclaiming the mystery of Jesus. These mysteries aren't logic puzzles that a shrewd investigator can unearth. They can only be understood by us in retrospect after God himself has revealed the secret to us and made the connections for us. And all of these mysteries 
center on the greatest mystery of all, that the redemption of mankind from our slavery to sin and our just and righteous condemnation under the law of God was wrought by God himself. He would make a way for us to be made new through the sacrificial death of the perfect son of God who came to earth and was born into human flesh so that he could be made like his brothers in every respect except for their sinful nature. The incarnate son lived a perfect life of complete righteousness and obedience, moral perfection, before dying as a sacrifice in the place of you and I, sinners, taking our penalty upon himself and imputing to us his righteousness and right standing before the Father so that anyone, anyone, anyone who turns from their sin in repentance and believes on him can be saved. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, you can be made new. Washed clean. Transformed. This is the mystery, brothers and sisters, that defies logic and wisdom from this age and its rulers. And it's a mystery that God declared from before time began for our glory. Not that we were glorious in and of ourselves, but that the perfect and perfecting love of God in Christ Jesus, applied by the work of the Holy Spirit, bestows on us glory from him. That's why in Romans 8, verse 29... It says that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the promise for us. If we are in Christ... If Christ is in us, the hope of glory, we will one day be glorified in him. And this glory is all of grace. Now the rulers of this age don't understand this mystery. In verse 8, Paul writes that if the rulers of the age had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now which rulers is he referring to? Well, in the immediate context, he's clearly talking about the rulers of his day. He's talking about the Jewish leaders and the Roman officials who were responsible for carrying out Jesus' crucifixion. Peter says as much in his sermons uh, on, on, the, on the day of Pentecost and just thereafter. You can see that in Acts chapter 2, um, verse 23. Acts 2, verse 23, in the middle of his sermon, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In the next chapter, in chapter 3, as he is uh, being questioned after the healing of a lame man, he says this in verse, chapter 3, verse 17. He says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as, all, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, 
that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So the the rulers of that day, in ignorance, but not in innocence, crucified the Lord of glory. They were guilty. They were still culpable for what they did because they acted out of sin. They acted out of their uh, uh, sinful, darkened hearts to crucify him. They didn't understand exactly what they were doing. That's why Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The eyes of the Jewish rulers and pagan conquerors could not see the Lord of life who had been standing before them. Now, nothing has changed in the generations that have passed since then, has it? The great men of the world do not truly understand this message. The rulers and culture makers of each age think it's foolishness. Why? Because the wisdom of God is not discovered by the proud, the fleshly, and the wicked. God has confounded the lofty and the mighty. This hidden and secret wisdom is outside the grasp of their logical calculations. Why? It is partly because they have been blinded by the enemy so that they cannot understand it. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we find this, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. This is what he was talking about in 1 Corinthians 1. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Don't miss that last part. It is a gift. It is not earned or arrived at or or climbed to by our own efforts. It is a gift of God that we have the light shining on us. So the rulers of each age have been blinded by the enemy so they cannot understand it. But lest they try to claim innocence, there's another reason why they and why we, before we knew Christ, could not see this mystery ourselves. We, we love our sin too much. That's what John says uh, in John, or what Jesus said in John 3, verse 19. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In fact, John, this is in my notes, but I'm going to throw it in there every, anyway. John 1, 1 John 1, in John's first epistle, he kind of plays on this theme in John 1, verses 1, for, excuse me, 1 John 1, verses 1 through 5, uh, 5 through 10. He says, this is the message we've heard, that we've heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word's not in us. Those who come to the light come to have their works exposed, to come to be washed clean. Those who refuse to come to the light love the darkness so that their works may remain hidden, they think. In our sinful flesh, we refuse to come to the light, refuse to acknowledge the Lord as God. So Romans says in, uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, where he writes, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Doesn't that sound like 1 Corinthians 1? The wise of this age have become foolish by the wisdom of God. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds, or animals, or creeping things. Now, if this is true, if we are, by nature, blind rebels who reject the truth of Jesus, how can any of us ever see this divine mystery? How can any of us hear the voice of the Lord? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 1 and keep reading. Or, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 2 and keep reading. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The only way for us to perceive and understand the mystery of the cross of Christ is for the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see its beauty and ears to hear its message. Paul here partially quotes the Greek translation of Isaiah 64.4, which was a prophecy about unexpected divine deliverance. While some of us may have heard this verse and verse from our text used in the past to talk about the unspeakable glories of heaven that await us, look what Paul is talking about in context. He's referring to not the place that Jesus is preparing for us in his Father's house, but the glorious redemption that Jesus has already accomplished for us on his cross. This is the mystery that God has revealed to us through his Spirit, verse 10 says. The Spirit of God knows the mind of God and searches out the depths of God because the Holy Spirit is God. Just in case you were curious, we're Trinitarian here. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. Amen. I don't think you can have a clearer affirmation than we find in verses 10 and 11 that the Holy Spirit is God since only God can fully know God. 
That's Paul's point. If the one who can truly grasp the thoughts of a man is his own spirit, his inner self, then the only one who can grasp the inner thoughts of God is God himself, his own spirit. Verse 12 then says, We have received this very Holy Spirit, not the spirit of the age, the spirit of the world. Now, why is this important? Well, without the Holy Spirit, we cannot understand the things of God. We'll touch on this again in a moment in verse 14, but but don't miss the phrase, the things freely given us by God. That's beautiful. Consider all the things you have been, if you are a Christian, consider all the things you have been freely given by God. Creation, the gifts of common grace. Redemption from sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit who takes up residence in every believer as a deposit or guarantee of the inheritance we have in Christ and who helps us understand the gospel and the deep truths of God. What great gifts we have already been given by God, let alone what is to come. As Paul goes on to say later at the end of chapter 3, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. I mean, we can stop right there. That's good. You have what you need. You have hope. I have hope. Now, there's something else we should notice in this section about Paul's use of we, really in this whole, whole passage, about Paul's use of the pronouns we and us. Now, Paul's been speaking for himself singularly in the preceding section in chapter 1, and then in chapter 3, he goes back to using I. But in our text, we see the word we used a few different times. Now, I think one, in one sense, you and I can claim things like verse 12 as our own, a promise for all believers who are indwelt by the Spirit. That said, this section, in this section, the we and us may also be referring to Paul and the other apostles. So think about it that, approach it that way. Let's take a look again. Remember, you can see in verse 6, we impart wisdom. Verse 7, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom. In verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us, and we impart this. So he's, he's speaking not only uh, corporately about believers, but also specifically about those who have been given the word of God to proclaim. Remember what Jesus said in, in John chapter 14, as he was about to leave the believers. He was in the upper room, and he says, I'm going to sp- send a helper to you, who is going to teach you all things and remind you of what I've said. This is a promise that Jesus makes to those who would go on, several of them, to write the very New Testament we're reading. And then Paul, as the final apostle, received wisdom from the Spirit of God, understanding from the Spirit of God, so that he could write these things down for us to read and to learn from. This inspired, perfect, inerrant Bible that we have is a gift from the Holy Spirit who taught these men what to say. The Holy Spirit inspired and instructed the apostles to understand and communicate this same mystery that now Paul is proclaiming. That's what we see in verse 13. 
Now, in verse 13, Paul says that we impart this, the things freely given us by God, in words that are not taught by human wisdom, going back to referencing chapter 1 again, because this is all just one big argument that he's making in these like first three chapters, first four chapters, really. And he's contra- contrasting this wisdom versus the world's wisdom. But these things are taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That's how it's written in the ESV. Now, this phrase is rendered like that in the ESV because it connects to the next idea, or the idea in the next section. But you may notice there's a footnote that gives you kind of an alternate interpretation, saying, uh, interpreting spiritual truths in spiritual language. And that's because, really, the Greek is a little ambiguous on this. It's how it... If you, it, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I'm, I, I use resources, and that helps. It, it basically comes out as, and it kind of roughly translated, comparing spiritual with spiritual. And so English, you know, uh, English translators, use, you know, using their best wisdom, try to carry that, what that means to the text. So in, in one sense, it's explaining spiritual things to spiritual people, but in another sense, and I think it's probably a little bit better reading, is explaining spiritual things with spiritual words. Lost my place. (laughs) Just a second. Okay. In other words, we don't try to convey the spiritual truths of God using merely human reason or rhetorical wisdom, but we use the words the Holy Spirit gives us, the the foolishness of what we preach, he said in the previous chapter, to communicate God's truth. And now, and now in our day, the truths that Paul and the apostles taught, we have available to us in this perfect word of God. The same Holy Spirit who dwells in each believer taught and inspired the writers of the New Testament to write down what Jesus and the apostles taught. This New Testament, it's a record of their teaching. And now, this same Holy Spirit illuminates us to understand these spiritual things using spiritual words so that we can now communicate that same mystery to others. And just like those first believers in Corinth, we can only understand God's mysterious plan of redemption because he has given us his Holy Spirit to help us see it. Why? Because the Spirit of God reveals to us the mind of God, right? By the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we can understand these spiritual truths in spiritual language, but only because we are spiritual people. That's Paul's next point in the last three verses here. Verses 14 through 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, let's be very clear here, Christian. When we're talking about the natural person, recognize that the natural person is every single one of us without the intervention of the Holy Spirit. Okay? You are not spiritual because you are wiser or more well-read or more educated or more thoughtful. You are only spiritual because of the Holy Spirit that has been given to you. 
Now, you may be growing in faith and maturity, but the natural versus spiritual dynamic is a binary, just like the inescapable binary of goats and sheep and those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. You are either natural or you're spiritual. And you're spiritual not because you're special, but because God is gracious. Every single person in this room, every single person in this room is either natural or spiritual. You may be a spiritual person currently walking in foolishness and following the flesh because you're not obeying the Spirit. But if you are truly born again, you have the Spirit of God. You are spiritual. And so you have, by God's grace, the ability to read this and for it to make sense through his Spirit. In verse verse 14, Paul says that the natural man does not and cannot understand the things of God because they are foolishness to to him. He sees them as powerless, dull, stupid, insipid. In Romans 8, we find this. Romans 8, starting in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let me pause there. If you are not born again, if you have not repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus as Savior, you cannot please God. You are unable to please God on your own. I don't care how many times you sit in this room. I don't care how many times you've read through the Bible or have so many bookshelves of theological works on your wall. If you do not know Jesus by faith, by repenting of your sins and trusting in him, you can never please God. Your works are worthless unless they are done in faith. You cannot please God on your own. But let's flip that. Christian, if you have repented of your sins and put your trust in him, however faultingly you are following him, however you struggle to obey, however you fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and whatever burdens you carry, if you are repenting in him, you're repenting to him and trusting in him, you are pleasing to him in Christ. Yes, you will sin. Repent. Turn back. Yes, you will fall into old habits and walk in the flesh. Stop that foolishness. Turn around. Follow after the Spirit. But know that your position in Christ is secure if you have repented and trusted in him. Hold on to that. In verse 14, Paul says the natural mind does not accept the things of God. Darkened minds are not only unable but unwilling to receive the wisdom of God. I actually saw a perfect example of this this week on Twitter. I could stop there, and that would be a sufficient explanation, let's be honest. I saw a meme, love memes, posted by some random pagan that somehow found its way into my feed, and there were two contrasting pictures. 
on the one side, there was a, a picture of a statue, a sculpture of Caesar, armed raised in victory. On the other side, it was a painting of like Jesus on the cross, sad, sickly, and gaunt. It tells you how the, how the meme's going to go. On this side, it says, pre-Christian values, dominance, courage, wealth, justice. I need to use my deep voice. Wealth, justice, assertiveness, glory, pride, vengeance, challenger, virility. I don't know why. Christian values on this side, the meme said. The opposites. Submission. Fear. Poverty. Mercy. Meekness. Anonymity. Shame. Forgiveness. Martyrdom. And castration, which I still don't understand why that was included. I guess because you can't fornicate like an animal, so that's why they're, yeah. Anyway, Christian. Notice the contrast. These values are, see, are held up. This is greatness, pre-Christian values. Christian values are seen as shameful. But here's the thing. You can't get any of this, truly, outside of the cross. There is no glory that lasts outside of the cross. There is no power that lasts outside of the power of God. There is no uh, 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 courage that lasts beyond, better than the courage to face death knowing we have a hope beyond death. There is no true wealth that lasts because physical wealth is fleeting, but wealth that we have in heaven forever is secure. This darkened, foolish, natural man thought that the way of strength and power is through self because the way of the cross is foolishness to the mind that is darkened. It is folly to him, but to those of us who are being saved, Jews and Greeks, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. On one level, this pagan argument makes sense from, a, from the world's perspective. I mean, these are the things that our culture loves and worships. They're, these values aren't merely pre-Christian as if they're only Greco-Roman. They're, they're the gods of our age. But what this natural man who posted this meme doesn't understand is that the rulers of this age and their mindset and their thinking is doomed to pass away. The natural man can't see this unless he is given eyes to see it. On the other hand, verse 15 says that the spiritual person judges all things but is himself judged by no one. Now, what does that mean? Now, some would try to use this verse to say that a spiritual person is somehow above accountability for their life or teaching. We know flatly that is wrong from Scripture. So that's obviously not what Paul means. So if you hear someone try to misuse 1 Corinthians 2.15 like that, you say, no, that's not what it means. Instead, The key is context. If the natural man cannot understand or discern the things of God, then he cannot also discern or judge the spiritual man and his way of life. That's Paul's point here. If our gospel is veiled to unbelievers, then our way of life will likewise appear strange and foolish to them. I mean, good heavens, you have gotten up and dressed 
on a Sunday morning to hear some windbag talk to you about a 2,000-year-old letter from an itinerant Jewish teacher. Congratulations. Don't you people know there's brunch to be had and, and, and news programs to be watched and gardens to be tended to this morning? What are you doing here? Not only that, but you actually give your money to a church where you don't get any tangible return on investment? You even volunteer to help out with a summer kids camp called VBS when you don't even have any kids there? Hint, hint. (laughs) Yes, yes, we do it. Well, that's bizarre. That's stupid. It's Christianity. It's the spiritual life of the church as spiritual people who live in light of eternity. The natural man cannot understand it, but the spiritual man does. In fact, what verse 15 says is that we who have the Spirit are able to understand the world in a way that the natural man or woman can't because we recognize the spiritual overlay of things. There's more going on than what can be grasped by reason or perceived with the senses. Seems that in this case, Hamlet was correct. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. There is a mystery planned before time began in the mind of God and now revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that revealed mystery changes everything for those who have been given ears to hear it and eyes to see it. Good news that turns the upside-down world right-side up again. That's why... D.A. Carson writes this. I thought this was really perceptive. He says, From this perspective, it is idiotic, that is not too strong a word, to extol the world's perspective and secretly lust after its limited vision. That is what the Corinthians were apparently doing. That is what we are in danger of doing every time we adopt our world's shibboleths, dote on its heroes, admire its transient stars, seek its admiration, and play to its applause. When the church starts to submit to the fickle judgments of the culture around us, based on the limited understanding of natural fallen minds, we become foolish as well. We make decisions because the world is watching and not because the coming of the Lord is at hand. We abandon spiritual truth and chase after the latest cause or the current thing that the rulers of this age have held up as paramount. When that happens, a church falls into compromise, division, and sin. That's what Paul warns about in the start of the next chapter, chapter 3. The Corinthians were acting like they were still in the flesh. And were thinking, behaving in an immature and natural way. So how do we avoid this trap? Paul gives us the key at the very end of our passage. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? This is a rhetorical question echoing the words of the Old Testament. Who is like the Lord? Who can measure his wisdom? Who can fathom his power? Certainly not the rulers of this age, but we who have been given the Spirit of God now have the mind of Christ. And when we as believers walk in step with that Spirit, as we renew our minds so that we follow after Christ, we find that we have unity in spirit, unity of purpose. This is what Paul said at the beginning of his letter to the Corinthian church, that they would be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. How? Because they have the mind of Christ through the ministry and sanctifying work of the Spirit. We preach Christ crucified every week, every time we gather. 
folly to the natural man, but wisdom to the spiritual. So that as we mature in faith and understanding, we grasp more and more of this great mystery of the crucified conqueror. So what do we do with this? I've got three takeaways for the Christian, and I have one final message for the unbeliever. So the three takeaways for the Christian. First, be humble. Be humble. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Those of us who are mature recognize more and more how much we need to rely on the Spirit to teach us. And we want to be obedient to his word. Be humble. Secondly, be bold. It sounds like a contradiction. It's not. See, Acts uh, 16. In Acts 16, Paul uh, is... Uh, uh, he landed in, uh, um, say, Philippi. Yeah. In verse 13 of, Paul, of, of Acts 16, Paul, Paul writes that on the Sabbath, or Luke actually writes of Paul. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you've judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The Lord opened her heart. Paul didn't open her heart. The Lord opened her heart. I don't have to convince you that the gospel is true. That's not my job. My job is to tell you that the gospel is true, to explain these words as best I can using spiritual words in my own faulting, halting way. And the Holy Spirit convinces you that these words are true. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens your heart to listen. So Christian, as you tell other people about Jesus, as you explain in your own stumbling, halting way these mysteries... Be bold. Be bold because you don't have to convince them. Man, I love apologetics. I am thankful for those who have the, have the intellect and the gift to, to do apologetics because it is such a strengthening thing for our faith and for us to, to be able to understand our faith. But even as we appreciate and, and, and praise those who study in this way, I want to remind you that you don't have to have 37 arguments in your back pocket for the existence of God because the word itself is powerful. That's helpful, but don't let that stop you from opening your mouth and speaking the word because the Holy Spirit will use it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing comes, from, comes by the word of Christ. Preach the word. Always use words. You never, preach the word, you never preach the gospel without words. Always use words. Preach the word. Proclaim the good news. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. 
Tell strangers. Stand on the street corners. Pass, pass notes in your class. Just kidding. But tell, talk to them after class. Proclaim the good news. Be bold. Finally, be united. If we are all seeking to walk in step with the Spirit, we will walk in greater unity. We will love, we will forgive, we will exhort, we will sharpen one another as we grow together in maturity. Ephesians 4 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. A little bit later on it says that God gives the, the apostles, the, actually, let's go to verse 11, sorry. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Be unified. As you yourself walk in step with the Spirit, seek to be obedient, to follow, what's going to happen is you're going to have brothers and sisters doing the same thing who are going to walk with you. Before I got married, I was talking to a, a, some friends of mine, a couple, and I was asking them, because you know, I'm a single guy, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know anything. I'm like, okay, so like, how often do y'all like, have arguments? Like, really? And the guy's like, no. Like, we have disagreements. We sin against each other, but, but no, not like knockdown dragouts. Really? Because people keep telling me, you know, you'll never know if you're really going to make it with your, with your, you know, with your significant other, your fiance, until you've had a really good fight. And he's like, maybe, but he said, I have the Holy Spirit, and she has the Holy Spirit. And when we sin against each other, we feel convicted by the Holy Spirit. And so that usually helps us to avoid getting to that point. Now, I'm not saying that to condemn you, because I know some of us have had some of those, some of those you know, picture-shaking uh, arguments. But what he was saying, I think, applies to the church. As we walk together, let us each seek to follow the Spirit, to submit to the Spirit, to walk in unity and faith together so that we may walk together. So those are my exhortations for the Christian. Be humble, be bold, be united. Here's my last word. If you're here and you are not a believer in Jesus, if you're just checking this out, if you're here with a friend, if you're here because your mama's here and you want to do her a favor and be here for church, I don't care why you're here. If, this has, if any of this has made any sense to you, 
do not harden your heart. Today, if you, heard, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Respond right now to his call. Don't walk away. Don't leave the room before dealing with this. If any of this, if you, are not, if you are not a Christian and there's any part of this that you're like, is that true? Is that true for me? I'm going to be right down here. During this next song, as the, the band folks get ready to come back up, during this next song, I'm going to be right down here. You come talk to me. During the music, I don't care. I'm not going to be singing. I'm going to be waiting. Come down and talk to me. That's right, we're doing an altar call right here. Because here's the thing. I'm not trying to convince you that this is true. But if the Spirit is speaking to you, listen. And do not harden your heart. Let me pray for you. Lord God, thank you for your word that is strong and powerful. Thank you for your Spirit who moves whatever way he will. And we cannot guess or anticipate how your spirit will work. Thank you that you have given us light, that you've given us insight, that you have revealed this mystery to us so that we who deserved judgment have found mercy in Jesus Christ. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they will be encouraged. They will be reminded that what they have, they have as a gift from God, not of their works so that no one can boast. And I pray for those who hear this who are not believers but have heard, as if often the distance, the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, come, I pray that they would hear and they would move and they would follow that call. And believe in this gospel and be saved. I pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.